Spherical cow. Before we start this episode, let's recap what we discussed last time. By the late 1800s, the world was thought to be well understood by physicists. However, whilst working on the ultraviolet catastrophe, one of the few remaining problems, Max Planck made the groundbreaking discovery that EM radiation can only be absorbed in discrete packets of energy. Rather than being able to take on any value, he discovered that energy is quantized. This more particle-like characteristic of light revolutionised the world of physics and marks the beginning of quantum mechanics. Hello there and welcome back to Spherical Cow. This week we're going to be continuing our journey through the history of light and the birth of quantum mechanics. So Nana, take it away. Thanks Olivia. So as you said last time, Einstein was actually really important in the birth of quantum mechanics for his work on something known as the photoelectric effect. So the photoelectric effect describes what happens when you shine light on a metal plate and um, this causes electrons to be released from the surface of the metal plate. So if your metal plate is connected in a circuit, then the, that um, those jumping electrons which are jumping off the metal plate will create a current through the circuit and that current can be detected. So the photoelectric effect... Sorry, I'm just going to interject a little bit. No, no, that's fine. I just want to tell our listeners, I am very excited to listen to this section because I hear a lot about the photoelectric effect, but I've actually, I don't know anything about it. So I'm just very excited. Oh, no, 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 that sounds great. Well, hopefully I don't disappoint you, but we'll see how that goes. Um, so you the can never disappoint Nana. Oh, thanks, Olivia. So the photoelectric effect was actually first discovered in 1887 by Heinrich Hertz, that um, famous physicist I was talking about last time, who um, who the, uh, the the unit of frequency is named after um, the Hertz. Mm-hmm. So Heinrich Hertz actually. Um, was the guy who proved that light was an electromagnetic wave, as I mentioned last time. And kind of ironically, I mean, this will become a bit more apparent later on once I have actually um, explained the photoelectric effect. Um, But he was the guy who discovered um, the photoelectric effect. And that's ironic, and you'll see why later on. Um, So basically... Okay, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully... (laughs) Hopefully... um, We'll see the connection later on. Um, So in the experiment... um, in or in a common experiment in order to um, just see the photoelectric effect in action. Um, you have a metal plate connected to the negative terminal of a battery and then you have a small gap, um, just some air in between and then you have a collector and that collector is connected to the positive terminal of the battery and somewhere in this circuit will have an ammeter. An ammeter just measures the current because that will be useful because when you shine light onto the metal plate you cause electrons to be emitted from the surface and those electrons are attracted to to the collector because um, opposite charges attract and because the collector is connected to the positive charge, sorry, the positive terminal of the battery, it's positively charged. So you've got those negative electrons jumping across that air gap and they're being collected by the collector and this means that current can flow through the circuit and the ammeter detects that. So that's basically um, one of the ways that you can um, detect the photoelectric effect in action. And there's both wave theory and particle theory ideas which can predict why 
um, shining light on a metal plate should knock electrons off or cause them to be emitted. Because that seems like a bit of a weird jump. I know. So. I was, I was, I was literally just going to ask you how before we carry on. How, how, where are we getting these electrons from? So yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so wave theory, um, so that's kind of all the theory I was talking about um, last time, that light is an electromagnetic wave. Um, they they suggest one explanation for the photoelectric effect, and that explanation is um, that oscillating electric field I was talking about. Um, that basically heats up the electrons in the metal surface, causes them to vibrate and jiggle about a lot, and eventually they have enough energy to free themselves from the metal surface and jump across that gap onto the collector. I see, okay. So that explanation is purely based on the idea of light travelling as a wave. And along with that um, idea, they had some predictions. So they thought that increasing the intensity of the light would mean that more energy is transferred per metre squared per second um, to the electrons, so they'd be jiggle about more vigorously, and that means they would gain more kinetic energy and have a greater speed when leaving the metal plate. Um, so... I can explain that a bit further, Olivia, but you have a choice now. Um, would you okay. like the um, beach ball wave, um, water wave analogy, or do you want a dog analogy? Ooh. Or I both, but I'll... which one do you want to go for first? Um, let's, go with the, let's go with the beach ball first, because I'm thinking of holidays okay. at the moment. So. <laughs> so, basically, you can imagine the light coming in as a big water wave. So, if we have a water wave that's really, really tall, so the water wave has a, a big amplitude, and we have some beach balls just lying on a dock, we can imagine if that wave came along and disrupted those beach balls, they're going to fly off a lot because that water wave is like really really big because it had a great amplitude it's gonna cause all the beach balls to like jostle off in all direction yeah and it has a lot of energy yeah exactly whereas if we were looking at a low amplitude water wave um colliding with those balls on the dock they're not going to jostle them about as much so that's basically what um scientists were thinking they thought that the bigger the amplitude of the wave, and amplitude is related to intensity, and I'll explain that in a moment, why there's that link. But the greater the amplitude of the wave, the more kinetic energy, or the more jostling of the beach balls, or electrons, <laughs> is what we're actually talking about. So basically, if the light has a greater amplitude, the electrons will have more kinetic energy when they fly off. That was the prediction of this wave um, theory explanation. And the reason why... I see, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense, exactly. Um, and the reason why amplitude is related to light intensity is... We're going to go back to water waves here. So if you imagine you have a water wave of a specific height, and now we double that height... If we're talking in terms of gravitational potential energy, that's how much energy like the mass has, um, and it increases as you get further and further away as the height increases. So if we think about how much um, gravitational potential energy the, the water wave, which is twice the height of the original one, has, it's going to have um, mm -hmm. twice because of the change in height, the doubling of the height. But also, by doubling the height of our water wave, we've also doubled the mass involved in that water wave. Um, so we've got oh, this yeah. extra doubling effect because um, gravitational potential energy is the mass times g, which is 9.8, times the change in height. So if we've doubled our height, but we've also doubled the mass contained within our water wave, then overall the energy is increasing by um, four times. So there's that, um, there's like a squared relationship. The energy is proportional to intensity mm -hmm. and intensity is proportional to amplitude squared. Um, so hopefully that gave you a bit of an idea why they're related. 
Um, so yeah, one of the major predictions of this wave theory to explain the photoelectric effect was that if you increase the intensity of the light or increase the amplitude, um, then the kinetic energy of those electrons which are, are being emitted from the metal surface so should increase. So that's an important thing to remember. Now if we move on to the particle theory ideas to explain it, these were the ideas that were thought of by Einstein. And they appeared in one of his Annus Mirabilis papers, um, so that means Miracle Year papers. Einstein actually wrote um, four really, really important papers in 1905 about like a range of physics topics. There was one about... That's insane. I know, it was pretty incredible. There was, so there's one about... Four in one year. I know, there's one about what I'm about to talk about. There's one about Brownian motion, um, and I can't remember one of them, but I know one of them is basically about special relativity. So he really covered a wide range of physics. But the one I'm going to talk about is his March paper, and it was titled On a Heuristic Point of View About the Creation and Conversion of Light. So in this paper, Einstein theorised that you could think of light as a stream of photons, or packets of energy. And when these photons knock into the electron, they transfer all of their energy to the electron, causing the electron to pop out of the metal. <laughs> um, so these packets of energy are what Olivia was talking about last time, the idea that light and radiation could be quantized into little packets of energy. And an important prediction of Einstein's work um, was that there was some minimum energy that the photon had to supply to the electron in order for the electron to overcome its attraction to all the positively charged nuclei in the metal lattice. If, if you remember from our episode on superconductors, um, metals are basically, they're these um, giant metallic lattices of positively charged um, ions and they're being surrounded by negatively charged electrons so mm. obviously there's some attraction between the electron and the positively charged ions and the electron has to overcome that attraction and that's where this idea of this minimum energy comes in the photon has to have enough energy to, in order to allow the electron to um, in the first place overcome its attraction and then any energy left over goes into the kinetic store of the electron I see so it would if you didn't have a minimum energy then technically some electrons might not be able to move. Yeah, exactly. So if the photon that collides with the electron doesn't have this minimum energy, it's called the work function. If it doesn't have the work function um, required, then the electrons are not going to move. It's not going to be emitted. Um, so there's actually a formula to describe this quantization of light that Olivia was talking about. It's E equals HF, where H is Planck's constant. E is the energy of the um, particle of light, or photon as we call it nowadays, um, and then F is the frequency. So basically this equation tells you that if you increase the frequency of the light, the energy of the um, photon, that little pack of energy, should also increase in direct proportion. Um, so even if the intensity of the light was really, really, really great, i.e. lots of photons hitting the surface of the metal, if the energy of each um, sorry, if the if the energy of each photon was lower than that minimum energy, that work function, then no electrons would be emitted. However, at frequencies above this um, threshold frequency, because frequency is proportional to energy, if you increase the frequency above, then all that leftover energy gets converted into kinetic energy and that's what causes the electron to um, 
move away at a certain speed. So increasing the frequency increases the kinetic energy. Um, and that's an important distinction to make. So I see. So um, that kind of your surplus energy determines the speed at which it shoots across. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's an important difference between um, Einstein's ideas and the classical wave ideas. So as I mentioned, wave theory predicts that the kinetic energy of the electrons is related to the intensity of the light, whereas Einstein is saying that the kinetic energy of the electrons is related to the frequency of the light. So that's a really important distinction to hold in mind. Um, And I had this doubt when I was researching this, so you might be wondering why can't you just put two low energy photons together in order to cause the electron to have enough energy to be emitted. Yeah, I was wondering when you when you were talking about how even if you had loads of photons but they had a very low frequency, surely they could, why can't they just put all their energy together and move like one electron across? Yeah, yeah, exactly, that's what I thought. But I think um, that would require two photons to hit the exact same electron at the same instant and that almost never happens. Ah. So in, in our model, um, we can um, assume that it's one photon for every electron. I see. Okay. So... Now that I've established that wave theory and that particle theory, um, let's talk about who was correct. So what happened experimentally when they carried out um, these more rigorous um, tests of the photoelectric effect? Um, So the actual experimental um, um, tests for the photoelectric effect came in 1916. It was done in a series of experiments by Robert A. Millikan. Um, And Millikan was actually really, really opposed to this particle idea that Einstein had come out with in 1905. So he was hoping that he would um, completely disprove it and, like, prove Einstein wrong. Ah, I see. So he was really hoping to to support the wave theory of um, the photoelectric effect. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But he found that there was, in fact, a cutoff frequency, um, like this minimum energy, and the kinetic energy of the electron was, in fact, um, related to the frequency, not the intensity. So that would have been very annoying. Yeah, he was really, really annoyed. Um, So just to recap, the observations of that experiment was that the kinetic energy of the electrons increases with light frequency, and so that it doesn't have anything to do with increasing intensity. But actually, interestingly enough, increasing the intensity of the light actually increased the number of electrons emitted. Um, so Okay, how, what, why is that? What's the correlation there? So basically, um, as I mentioned, intensity is the energy transferred per second per metre squared. Um, so if you have a greater intensity, i.e. more energy being transferred per second per metre squared, that means you're going to have more photons. And if there's more photons hitting the metal surface, then there's going to be more um, photons with adequate energy to free more electrons. So that means more electrons are released per second. And if there's more electrons released per second, um, what they detected was an increase in the current. So that's why increasing the intensity, it didn't increase the kinetic energy of the electrons, but it did increase the number of electrons that was released. Oh, I see. Okay, I've got those links clear now. Yeah, so as you can see, the observations of the experiment matched the particle theory that Einstein had come up with. So photons really did exist and light could behave as a particle. Um, Yeah, so I thought, so that's basically why Einstein won a Nobel Prize for his work on the photoelectric effect in 1921. And it's because... um, Basically, he helped show that light could be thought of as a particle. Um, But it wasn't just him who contributed to quantum mechanics. There was also a guy called Arthur Compton, who I'll touch on now. So, 
Um, despite the success of using those quanta that Olivia was talking about to rectify the ultraviolet catastrophe, and even despite the success of Einstein's photoelectric effect, um, his particle, um, sorry, his particle um, description to explain the photoelectric effect, many physicists were still reluctant to accept that light could behave like a particle. I see. It is, it is quite a radical idea. I find it hard to picture myself. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was really radical at the time. So you can understand why they were so reluctant. So you really needed someone to come along and um, explain the, um, sorry, and provide some more evidence for this particle theory. And that guy was Arthur Compton. So something known as the Compton effect was observed by Arthur Compton in 1923 at Washington University. Um, And he actually earned a Nobel Prize for his work on this effect in 1927. So, um, you can see it, it's, it's going to be really important and I'll explain why. Um, so just like the previous phenomena we've been discussing, um, the Compton effect um, demonstrates that light cannot be always thought of as a wave because sometimes using wave theory just doesn't actually predict the um, results of experiments. Um, so with Compton, with the Compton effect, you can't explain the shift in wavelength of a scattered x-ray. So I'll get into what that means now. So um, Compton's experiment basically involved focusing a beam of x-rays. So x-rays are really, really high energy um, electromagnetic radiation. And so that means it's quite a, it's quite a small wavelength. Um, so he focused this beam of x-rays onto a graphite target and he measured the intensities of the scattered x-rays which came um, like which were bounced off the graphite and he measured that against the wavelength and what he found was although a single wavelength of x-rays went in so he made sure that the x-ray the original x-ray source was of one single wavelength although there's only one wavelength going in he found that there were actually two intensity peaks coming out which signified there were um two different wavelengths of x-rays being emitted sorry being scattered what how does that work yeah so um this is basically where the particle interpretation of light has to come in to rescue us um so basically there was this difference between the you'd get one of the peaks would be the original wavelength but the other peak would just be um a greater wavelength a longer wavelength so there was this shift in the wavelengths and this shift between the um original wavelength and the observed wavelength of the scattered x-rays increased as the angle of scattering increased um so According to wave theory, the frequency of the X-ray radiation, um, that's basically how many times the electric field oscillates per second, um, those, when that um, oscillating electric field interacts with an electron, it causes the electron to oscillate with the same frequency of the wave, and then the oscillating electrons emit electromagnetic radiation of the same initial frequency. So according to wave theory, there should be no change in frequency or no change in wavelength. The original x-rays coming in should have the same wavelength as the x-rays which were being scattered off. Um, So there shouldn't be this Compton shift that Compton was um, detecting. Um, But obviously the experiment was showing otherwise. There there clearly was a shift in the wavelength between the original x-rays and the x-rays being scattered off. So um, this is what Compton proposed. He suggested that light and electrons in the graphite could collide with each other just like billiard balls on a pool table. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't really play much um, pool, but if you imagine having a stationary... No, but we've, we've been talking a lot about it um, in physics at the moment, haven't we, with momentum and all, and all of that. Yeah, 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 we have. So if you imagine one billiard ball just on the table, and then you're going to strike it with a different one which is moving, then you're going to cause the one which is originally stationary to move, and the one which hit it is going to be deflected off at an angle. So that's how we thought the, the light and the electrons were interacting. You could think of light as a particle and the electrons obviously electrons are particles oh, and they were interacting in this way and they were actually there was being there was a transfer of momentum sorry there was a transfer of momentum causing the electrons to move off um might be thinking that's a bit weird momentum light is light is massless how could light which is massless have momentum if momentum is mass times velocity like aren't you going to get zero um well i'll get onto that later so I think you asked Olivia why they're two different peaks earlier, or I think you said something like that. Um, yeah. The reason, so you have two peaks. One of the peaks is still the original wavelength. So the reason you still get some of the X-rays having the original wavelength is because if the X-ray strikes one of the innermost electrons, so they're very um, they're very much attracted to the positive nucleus at the center. So there's not enough elect. Um, sorry, there's not enough energy for that electron to escape. So instead, the incoming X-ray basically vibrates the whole atom, and the atom releases uh, an electromagnetic wave of the same frequency. So that's why you get the original frequency or the original wavelength again. Um, that but that shift in wavelength is because of um, the because of thinking of light in this particle. Um, way so basically um, mathematically Compton used conservation of energy momentum and he even resolved velocities into components you know all that good stuff (laughs) we do in mechanics and physics it's one of my favorite pastimes resolving a velocity vector into its two components (laughs) yeah definitely Um, so in order to explain why there was this shift in wavelength compared to the original um, sorry the original x-ray compared to the scattered x-rays Compton made some assumptions the first one was that he assumed that light could travel in discrete chunks and that's equation that's governed by e equals hf that equation I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. Um, or this can be rearranged to e equals hc over lambda and lambda is the wavelength and that's because the frequency times the wavelength gives the speed of light. So you can rearrange, if you want to write this down, might help to visualise it. Because C equals F times lambda. Don't, 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 stop. I'm just going to grab my pen name. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. So you you know when you always think you have a pen nearby, but you can actually never find it? Yes. I've got one. Go for it. When you need a pen, it's just never there. It's never there. (laughs) So we've got E equals HF because we um, Compton assumed that we could think of the light as traveling in discrete chunks. But obviously we know that C, the speed of light, is equal to F lambda, or V equals F lambda, but in this case the V is the C, the speed of light. Yeah. Now if we um, put in that, if we rearrange that C equals F times lambda to get an expression for frequency, so, so F C over equals, lambda. Yes, exactly. And we sub that into that first equation. We end up with... HC over lambda? Yeah, E equals HC Yay. over lambda. So that's one of our first equations, which is important. And the second equation actually uses a bit of special relativity from Einstein's theory of special relativity. And I think these equations emerged in his um, 1905 paper. So you, you're going to want to write this one down as well, Olivia. <laughs> Um, so okay. E squared equals C squared P squared yep. times C squared P squared times C squared plus yep. oh there's more plus in a bracket o- okay, open brackets bracket. M 
times c squared. M, M times c squared. Close bracket. Have you closed the bracket? Close brackets. And that's all squared, that bracket. I've closed the bracket. And that's all squared, oh, that bracket. Goodness me. Okay, can you just okay. show me that just to check we're on the same page? <laughs> Is that correct? Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah, okay. brilliant. I can do dictation. Woo. Woohoo. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Woo. Woo, sorry. That, well done, Olivia. Well done, sorry. Yeah, that was that was a bit negative. Um, but does that <laughs> equation ring any bells? E equals mc squared, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so E equals mc squared. The E in E equals mc squared is actually the rest energy. Um, so when something's at rest, it's not moving. So there's no momentum. So that p squared c squared term disappears. And that's why oh. the equation... That's why the equation simplifies down to E equals MC squared. So I thought that was pretty cool, that, that link. Is, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh. But now, in this case, we're dealing with photons. And photons are massless. So in this case, the MC squared all squared term disappears. Because photons are massless, so the M okay. is zero. So we end up with right. E squared equals... Cross that out. <laughs> so we end up with E squared equals P squared times C squared, which simplifies to E equals PC. You got that? Oh, I've got that. That's brilliant. And now we can put that those two equations together to end up with PC equals HC over lambda. And cancel the Cs on either side, and we end up with P equals H over lambda. So the momentum of the photon equals Planck's constant over the wavelength of the photon. So we've just shown that even though photons are massless, they can have a momentum associated with them. And that's basically how um, this interaction works. The photon transfers some of its momentum to the electron, and because there is a decrease in energy, because it's transferring some of its energy to the electron, that means that the if the energy of the photon has decreased because it's lost some to the electron, that means the frequency of the photon must decrease. If the frequency of the photon decreases, then the wavelength of the photon must increase. And that's why you get another peak. That extra peak is because of this photon losing energy and decreasing in frequency, so increases in wavelength. Oh, I see. So that's why we had two peaks from the results of our experiment, because the scattered x-rays had less energy than the incoming x-rays, so they had a longer wavelength. So, sorry, that was quite a lot of maths, but hopefully <laughs> you enjoyed it if you do like maths. Otherwise... Um... I enjoyed it, most definitely. Okay, that's good. If, if you enjoyed it, then I'm happy. <laughs> so as we can see from all that maths, the, basically, the Compton effect... Um, oh, sorry, I haven't actually told you the equation, okay? The, the full equation... Um, so, obviously, I kind of just paraphrased what was happening. There's a great derivation video I actually watched, so we'll link that on our website. Um, but the final equation that Compton ended up with was the shift in wavelength, i.e. the difference between the wavelength of the scattered X-rays versus the original X-rays, is equal to H over the mass of the electron times the speed of light... Um, and that term is all multiplied by, in brackets, 1 minus cos phi, um, or cos theta. Phi or theta just signifies the angle of scattering. So that's quite a complicated um, formula, but basically what it tells you is as you increase the scattering angle, the shift in wavelength increases. So the um, wavelength of the scattered x-rays is gets much greater than the, well, not much, but it gets greater than the original wavelength 
Whereas if you had a smaller scattering angle, then that difference wouldn't be as great. So this was what Compton came up with. And this equation was um, only came about because he thought of light in terms of... In that particle way. Yeah, in that particle way. And this equation perfectly agrees with the experimental observations. So um, that's why he won a Nobel Prize in 1927 for his work on the Compton effect. Um, so... Hopefully that's given you a bit of an idea why people started to move towards this idea of, okay, light can also behave as a particle. Um, But that's not where quantum mechanics ends. I think Olivia's going to tell us more about this um, particle and wave idea next time. Absolutely. Um, We're going to be returning, actually, to the double slit experiment and concluding this mini-series. Sounds good. Well, until next time. Goodbye for now from Spherical Cow. Spherical Cow